Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Writer Sandra Cisneros joins us today. Her uh, latest book, Martita, I Remember You, Martita de Recuerdo, is included in our UPR community book list. As a young woman, Karina leaves her Mexican family in Chicago to pursue the dream of becoming a writer in Paris. But her months of befriending panhandling artists and dancing the tango at underground parties are giving a lasting glow by her intense friendships with Martita and Paula. Over the years, the three women fall out of touch and out of mind until a letter unearthed in a closet brings Karina's days in Paris back with breathtaking immediacy. Poet, short story writer, and novelist, essayist, and artist Sandra Cisneros is the author of Bad Boys, My Wicked Wicked Ways, Women Hollering Creek, and other stories, The House on Mango Street, Caramelo, and uh, other books. The latest, of course, Martita, I Remember You. And uh, it's a pleasure, Sandra Cisneros, to welcome you to the program. Thank you. Hey, good morning, Tom. Good morning. So are you uh, are you in Mexico at this point? I am. I am in San Miguel de Allende, my home. Uh, probably not uh, snow like we got here. Uh, <laughs> no, it's uh, cool, but uh, we may reach 72 if, if we're lucky. Although I'm sure you dealt with a lot of snow in Chicago. That's why I live in Mexico. That's why you live precisely. in Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Um, well, this this book, um, I understand, has a, has had a long gestation period of eighties or nineties. Yes. I think when you first yeah. uh, right, uh, right. I started it when I was. Uh, Oh, I suppose early 90s. I don't know how old I was then. I'm going to be 67 in a few days, so half my life ago. And, uh, you know, it it began from a real memory of people I met and places I I stayed at, unfortunately, bad accommodations when I was traveling on an NEA grant when I was 28. I had just finished House on Mongo Street, thanks to a National Endowment of the Arts grant, and I had some money left over, and I thought, well, to be a real writer, I need to travel. So I was traveling in November and December and January, very cold months. And I met lots of people, especially women who were very helpful and formative in my life. And I gathered up those stories and those memories to create this book, Marcita, I Remember You. And uh, part of this uh, book is letters back and forth, right? Yes, yes. Originally, the story was uh, just the Paris part, and I, it was trying to be a, a shorter story in part of an uh, early collection that I wrote in the early 90s, but I couldn't finish it, so I put it down and uh, let it sleep for a while and brought it out of deep freeze about four or five years ago and finally finished it. Uh, I was reading another interview you gave. You talked about, uh, you say, in the old days when we actually wrote real letters. Um write real letters do you yeah um i I, every once in a every once in a great while uh it's very rare yeah and you know it takes it takes uh it's a gift to take the time to write a longer letter i think we put more effort and love into writing a longer letter and we appreciate receiving them even though they take longer to arrive i think it's their keepsake they're very special i know that when i write I put forward my best writing. I'm not hasty. The words are chosen with loving care. I think about entertaining or pleasing or honoring the recipient. And I hope the listeners will think about that during the holidays, about writing thank you notes or writing a letter as a gift as opposed to buying something, because I know that the 
most difficult work that I can put is uh, arranging words together to delight the reader. That's a great idea, excellent idea. And you're talking about writing out longhand, are you? Yes, writing yeah. out longhand. I try to write thank you notes longhand. Okay, nieces and nephews listening out there, send your tia a letter. You know, these uh, text thank you notes, these text emails or emails, thank you notes, don't cut it for me. And, and neither do cards. I think we really need to write to one another and express our feelings, and I think it's good medicine for everyone. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the book, um, the kind of chain of events uh, takes off when uh, Corina, you know, this is later in her life, uh, she comes across a, a letters or series of letters that she's packed away, and uh, these memories come flooding back, right, of this, this, this time, this extraordinary time in Paris uh, with, with these two friends. Yes, yes. Um, I was trying to capture uh, a time and a place especially in a woman's life with the friendships that we make when we're just uh, traveling for the first time or venturing out on our life path and we feel very tenuous and afraid. And women have always been there for me to uh, walk alongside me, in, in this case to give me shelter and courage, advice, uh, meals. So I was trying to uh, honor the memory of not only the women that I met on this trip, but uh, some of them were women who befriended me, but some of them were the stories that they told me. I wanted to honor those stories. And there are some extraordinary uh, stories here. Uh, Corinna says something striking. There are a lot of quotes in the book. Um, I'll bring a few forward as we go along. But Corinna says, we were we are waiting for something to happen. She's talking about her time in Paris. Isn't that what all women do until they learn not to? Yes, I think that um, when we are in our early 20s, or at least when I was in my early 20s, I thought that if I was in the right place at the right time, that uh, life would just sweep me up in its arms, that something great would happen. I didn't realize that I was being a little bit too passive, that I, I needed to make things happen as well. And uh, I, I think that passivity is maybe something that uh, derails us. I mean, I do believe that we have our divine providence and our path, but I also feel that we need to work towards uh, meeting our goals as well. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the, these three main uh, characters. Maybe we could start with uh, Karina. She is from Chicago, Mexican heritage. I guess Is this somewhat based on you? Yes, it began based on my life. All my work begins with some autobiographical emotion. And so it began with my life, although it isn't quite exact because the character is 20, whereas I was near, nearly 30 when I made this trip. And uh, I tried to write about uh, a time in my life when, uh, you know, you don't, you don't feel like you're saying the right thing. You hesitate when you speak because you want to appear more worldly than you are. You're afraid that, you know, of making a fool of yourself that time in your life. So I tried to capture that in the protagonist. And I began with some of my own aspirations and some of my own fears. But then uh, it took off and Corina became someone else. And it wasn't until I finished the story that I thought, who is this? Where did I gather this character from? 
Mm-hmm. And I can see a lot of strands from, you know, women in my life, women I'm related to and women who are friends, who didn't quite follow the path that I did, but who took a parallel path. Uh, Karina's there t- to be a writer, right? Yes, exactly. And, and, you know, we all know lots of people who start out in maybe in the profession that we want to go in, and and sometimes they don't follow it. They go off in a different route. And that's what I was writing about without being aware of it until I was done. I think a, pers- a piece of fiction, for me, is always a question. I'm always walking towards the answer to a question, but I don't know what the question is until I've gotten to the answer, and the ending is the answer. So it's kind of a breach baby. I write towards a question that isn't quite clear, then I finish the piece, and then I can see what the question was after after I'm done. Hmm. It's very poignant because we see these women later in life, right, and see who they've become. Uh, Karina... Is uh, I think mostly given up on her, you know, dream to be a writer later on in life, but she does a lot of reading. Yes, and I think that that's another thing. You know, sometimes we don't value women uh, for what they are because we define them. Oh, well, she works as a sales clerk, or she's a librarian, or oh, that woman, she's retired widow. But we don't see beyond that. And uh, I, I feel now that I'm 67, uh, how upsetting it is for me for these evaluations to be made when I know the trajectory of a woman's life and who she is and how extraordinary she is. Sometimes that extraordinariness is not uh, evident immediately, but uh, we know it perhaps by what they read or a more in-depth conversation. And perhaps it's like that with everybody. Perhaps we we make these judgments about people without truly knowing who they are. So I, I hope this book uh, explores and examines the friendship for this deep love that the protagonist has for her friends and how she understands who they are and how they understand who she is. Before I have you tell me about the, the other two characters a little more, um, uh, I've you know read uh, you talking about your mother, and you've talked about her in several writings. Um, and, and she had dreams, right? And it ended up yes. being, being a mother. Yeah. Um, right. Seven times a mother, you know, so she was, uh, had a very large family and was very frustrated because she never uh, met her, her dreams, but she didn't realize it, but she, her hunger to be an artist, uh, to be a thinker, to be, uh, someone who deals with ideas, that opened a path for her children, and she wasn't aware of it in her lifetime. Uh, I think her spirit is aware of it now, but uh, I, I feel that I was writing about her unconsciously, about women like her who perhaps uh, can only see what they haven't done and don't see what they've done. Mm. You, you spoke just uh, just a minute ago about uh, you know these judgments we make of people and... Um... You know, bring compassion to it, understanding to it. What, what was your? Uh, did your judgment of your own mother change? Uh, you'd say when you were a teenager oh, to, yes. to later in life. Yes, uh, yeah, ex- ex- especially uh, in the last moments of her life, because I was in her the room when she crossed over, and uh, I 
have been creating art, not just this story, but poetry and altar installations since my mother died, about my mother. Because I think when we're children, we only see, oh, you know, she didn't do this for me. You know, where we live a very, very narcissistic vision of our parents. And it isn't until uh, we're older and their age that we get to see who they really were. And if we're lucky, you know, we have a moment with them in which we can see them in their their fullness and who they were before we met them. And I was very fortunate to have an experience that I could see my mother before she met me, to have that moment when her spirit was crossing. And, uh, you know, I've tried to write about her ever since in a way that is more complete rather than simply as a daughter and a mother. One... um... One thing that you uh, write about your mother that really, really touched me, get helping to know her as a person. Um, she she was she had kind of intellectual aspirations, right? Reading, oh, yes. uh, and such. And your your, oh, your your father liked to watch yes. television, and so apparently she would exclaim every once in a while, "There's no intelligent life around here." <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and it was very insulting to all of us around her, but we wouldn't say anything because we knew when she got to that point of exasperation that it was best to be quiet. <laughs> yeah, but she was very well-read. Uh, she was uh, self-taught. She dropped out of school in the ninth grade because she didn't have a, a kind of wardrobe as her classmate. She felt ashamed of her poverty. Uh, but she never let go of the library and the museums. And every weekend, you know, we went off to the library, the Chicago Public Library, to the Art Institute, to the Field Museum, to every museum that was free, which at that time was all of them on Sunday. And, you know, that made all the difference that on a Sunday you could go to a museum, you could take your family of seven children and father and mother, and you didn't have to worry about whether you could afford it or not. And that became our schoolroom and changed us and also changed my mom because, you know, she would go to the library and take out a big stack of books and sit down and read a little bit before preparing dinner, and we would get our books and snuggle up beside her and read to ourselves and give her some quiet time. And she taught us by example. Mm. She was brilliant, actually. She was probably the most well-read person in the neighborhood, uh, a very different kind of reading than my reading, but uh, a brilliant woman who never never met her dreams and never developed herself, but opened the door for her children. And part of this is generations, right? You you realized at some point, uh, you know, she was born in the 20s, you were born in the 50s, uh, just... Mm-hmm. Time had, you know, society had changed. Right. I, I often think about that. I'm living in Mexico now, and it's very heartbreaking for me to see so many young women here who don't have the opportunity to get educated. And I think about my grandparents who lived 100 kilometers from where I live in the countryside. They were just country ranch people who didn't know how to read or write and wouldn't have emigrated if a revolution hadn't ousted them from their homeland. And I think about that shift and that move to the United States that you know, even though they couldn't read or write, now I'm an author, that incredible move, and how many people, girls especially, I think of here, who never have the opportunity because they don't have the education. It's very heartbreaking, I think, beyond Mexico, in the United States as well, and other countries where there's poverty. 
Uh, you, uh, in your biography, I, I noticed the, most all versions of your biography ends with she makes her living by her pen. There, there's some, right. some pride there, some wonder. And the reason, right? Tom, yeah. the reason why I did that, Tom, was because when I was a young writer, I would look hungrily at the bio notes of women writers, and usually it said where they lived and if they were a mother, if they had children, you know, where. But it never told you the question that I needed to hear. How does she make her money? I needed to hear that as a young writer. I needed to know how do I become a writer. And those bio notes didn't give me the answer. So I've tried when I write my bio notes to give something there for a younger writer to have hope. It's very rare that a writer can earn from her pen, but it is possible. Yeah, yeah. And you've done it. So that, so that, yeah. Well, I did it, but I have to admit, Tom, it wasn't my goal to earn uh, from my pen. My goal was to write uh, writing that was beautiful enough to be admired by the writers I admired. But I think the reason why I earned from my pen is a spiritual reason. I really believe that my first book, House of Mungo Street, was written with all my heart on behalf of my students with no self-gain. And I think that that's the secret to whatever we do, that it, whatever we create on behalf of those we love, with no ego involved, no self-gain in our mind, but just for pure love, is always going to turn out well. And for me, puro amor, pure love, is the key to everything we do. Yeah, very, very, very true. When, so when you were starting out, um, probably harder for you to envision yourself in a writer's life. They're, they're in Chicago, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, you know, I just envision maybe I'll um, be a teacher, a high school teacher, and I will write summers and maybe on weekends if I don't have too much homework. Uh, that was my dream, you know, that I would always have two jobs and perhaps I would be able to write over the weekend um, something small. I, I didn't uh, expect the life that I've been given. I feel very blessed and very grateful. Uh, I scratch my head and wonder, how did I get here even now? Uh, but uh, I feel gratitude and a sense of obligation of service to help others. What's your advice to to young writers? My advice to young writers is to earn your own money. This is key and very important because uh, if you're accepting money from someone else, then they will tell you what to do. And I, for you need financial independence because most people don't want you to study writing. They don't have much faith that it's going to keep you safe uh, and keep you fed. Uh, so you need to study as much as you can and have a very wide umbrella and understand maybe you'll make no money in your lifetime. And would you still keep writing? And if you still would, then you're a true writer. But understand you might have two or three jobs. Your real identity to yourself will be your art. But you may think that, uh, you know, oh, I've got to work on this or that. But that will keep you financially independent to control your own destiny. That's the important thing for me. So if you have to go to school to make yourself marketable, whatever it takes, if you have to do an apprenticeship, earn your own money. You've described uh, writing as, uh, I think you said, like being in a mine, your you kind of tunnel vision of Friends might come over the hole and, and call out to you, but you, you wave absentmindedly. You're, you're, <laughs> you're focusing on your writing. Yes, 
Yes, a lot of times, sometimes someone will say, I told you about this. I said, really? Did I have my hands on a keyboard? <laughs> Was I off looking in the distance? I don't remember. So I, I feel as if I'm I, like a coal miner. I'm just in another universe. Uh, I'm often uh, very uh, happy being in this other universe, and lockdown has been for me a, a spiritual retreat. I enjoy being by myself. I never feel bored, and I'm never lonely. And that's a great thing about my profession. Never bored, never lonely. Uh, it is a great thing, yeah. Well, we're overdue for a break. Let's take a break now, and uh, we'll come back with uh, Sandra Cisneros. The latest book is in English and Spanish. Martita, I remember you. Martita, te recuerdo. Um, and it's included in our latest UPR community book list. And we'll have more following this. Holiday programming on UPR is made possible by Intermountain Healthcare, reminding the public that during flu season, a flu shot can help people stay healthy and safe. Doctors recommend getting a flu shot each year for optimal protection. More information at intermountainhealthcare.org slash flu. This is Science by the Slice. Using emerging battery technology, USU chemist Leo Liu and his students are developing an integrated design aimed at solar-powered electrification. Increasing demand for electricity in remote rural areas poses challenges, Lou says, but also creates opportunities for development of decentralized electrification systems. Compared with conventional electrical grids based on largely centralized power generation stations, commonly used in developed countries, a centralized approach offers lower capital cost, a smaller footprint, and nimble deployment. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Today we're uh, talking with the writer Sandra Cisneros. Um, and her latest book is Martita, I Remember You. Martita Te Recuerdo. It's included in our latest UPR community book list. It's out and available now. Um, and uh, Sandra Cisneros, of course, is author of House on Mongo Street, Caramelo. Um, she has um, a book called House of My Own, Stories from My Life, uh, many other books. And um, she's born in Chicago, 1954, citizen of both the United States and Mexico, and she's joining us from Mexico. Uh, the, the book here, uh, a young woman, Corina, leaves her Mexican family in Chicago to pursue her dream of becoming a writer in Paris, but her months of befriending panhandling artists and dancing the tango at underground parties are given a lasting glow by her intense friendships with Martita and Paolo. Over the years, the three women fall out of touch and out of mind until a letter unearthed in a closet brings Karina's days in Paris back with breathtaking immediacy. So, Sandra Cisneros, uh, maybe tell us a bit about uh, Marta. Oh, well, you know, Marta is based on a real Marta that I met and uh, who I lost through the years. And I wanted to write uh, about this woman because she was someone I knew for a, a few slender weeks. But sometimes... You meet people and they stay in your life for an eternity. Why is that? Why do some people that we know for such a short time enter our being and we think about them over the years? Why is that? that that's what I was trying to answer, I suspect, when I was writing 
Martita, te recuerdo, Martita, I remember you. And uh, she is based on an Argentine woman, uh, one of many women I met when I was traveling. She's kind of cut and pasted from several people. But I thought about the women I met. A lot of them were there with very little money, uh, trying to live a dream, uh, maybe to learn French in Marta's case, uh, maybe to before she went home she wanted to have some sort of French language skills so that she could be more marketable or she could impress her family and friends for whatever reason. And she's looking for something to change her life, something romantic perhaps, uh, working in whatever job she can get, whether it's being an au pair or uh, at, a, at a tanning salon, whatever she has to do so that she can live in the glamorous city, Paris. But, of course, her life isn't glamorous, and this, that's what the story's about. This is almost an anti-Parisian story. It's not the Paris stories you're used to seeing. I hope I've written a new kind of Paris story as seen from people who are living underground, uh, the immigrant community, people who are coming from other countries, and for whatever reason, they've been drawn to Paris and are trying to stay there for as long as their their money holds out. Uh, yeah, I was just going to mention that. Uh, it's, uh, there's not a sentimental gloss over this, right? It's, it's, um, no. it's, it's fr- freezing in their apartment, <laughs> just a little heater trying to get warm. <laughs> Um, you know, and, and a lot of experiences like that. Yes, yes. It's really the, uh, an anti-poetics, uh, the, the reality that people who don't have any money uh, live. It could be New York City. It could be uh, Tokyo, but it's Paris. And for artists, that's always a mecca. Uh, artists want to go to Paris and live there and live like artists. But, uh, you know, you don't realize that now artists don't live like in the movies in Paris. It's much harsher and more difficult. And yet, at the same hand, there's something very beautiful about the friendships and the camaraderie that you see among the three women. Part of the discussion, the letters back and forth, the discussions between the friends, the things they have to navigate, part of it that really struck me was uh, trying to protect each other from predatory men, yes. from, from situations yes. that might be dangerous for a woman. Um, yes. That was definitely part of it, and I guess part of any woman's life. Yes. I think men have to navigate other fears uh, when they're out traveling, but I tried to. I don't know that route because I, I didn't have the confidence of the men that I met. But the women told me their stories. And uh, I tried to honor those stories by weaving them in. There were many, several women, and as I say in the acknowledgement, uh, several martitas in my life. And I tried to honor their stories by documenting their, what they had told me here. I was often appalled by some of the things that they had lived, and uh, I wanted to take care of them too. So I suppose I'm taking care of them by telling their story. Um. You uh, you traveled all over uh, several places in Europe, right? Um, and yes. went to Sarajevo as well. Yes, I did. I wound up uh, living in Sarajevo before the war, and traveling back uh, afterwards. I still have a close friend who lives there. It's like a sister to me, and uh, you know this this 
NEA grant that I got when I was 28 was very life-changing, not only because I was allowed to finish a book that I would probably still be writing now, A House Among the Street, uh, but also because of the experiences I had traveling. I, I wouldn't have been able to afford to travel for a year if it hadn't been through that National Endowment for the Arts grant. It's made a big difference in my life. Yeah. I want to return to this idea of memory. You, you say you know, some people, I think we've all experienced this, some some people just, just stick, even if you've only known them for a few weeks. And that's the right. case, of course, for, um, you know, for Marta with, with Corina. Um, why, why do you think that is? Well, you know, I, I tried to answer that question. I asked that question myself. I wasn't clear what the emotion was when I began the story, and that's, that's how I begin all of my writing, through some uh, blurry emotion that needs clarity, and I walk towards that answer. So I think when I finished the story, I realized that it doesn't matter how much time we spend with someone. We can have a very deep love for them, even if it's you know, we just met them for a few weeks or a few days or a few hours, that that power of love transcends linear time. And uh, I realized after I had finished writing this book that all of the women who shared their stories with me, who sheltered me when I was homeless or wandering, uh, you know, that there was a great gratitude and love that I felt for each of them. And I hope that comes through in the way that I've sketched each of these characters. There's a lot of power in that remembering, right? It's very poignant, the fact that, you know, the title, Martita, I Remember You. Corina writes that, right? Martita, I remember you. I remember yes. all the details. I remember well, I remember you. Right, right. It's like that when we close letters. I was really playing on the closing of letters. You know, I hug you. Martita, don't forget me. Uh, no me olvides. You know those closings. I, uh, we want them not to forget us, and uh, n- we never will forget them. So this is what the the gist of the book is about: people we meet who stay lodged in our hearts. I want to read just a paragraph here. We went back to talking about um, the unsentimentally glossed uh, you know, memories of Paris. Um, and so you write, if you run your finger across the globe on the same latitude as Chicago or near Paris, where I'm staying with Martita and her canoe bed, we're taking sponge baths in front of a butane heater that gives me a headache. It's so cold we have to set the purple plastic tub right in front of the heater, shiver when we wash, walk down to the end of the hall to refill or empty our bucket, water stains on the dusty wood floor back and forth. Um, and... You uh, you write elsewhere, I think fairly close to this, any city is beautiful if you're rich. You, you make that observation. Yes, yes. I think that that's the difference. When I was there when I was 28 uh, and very locked into limited funds, it's very different from when I go back now and have plastic that I can click on a tabletop. It's very different. And uh, I think a lot of young people and, and a lot of immigrants and people who don't have uh, the, the plastic card, you know, it's it's difficult to be in any city. Even the one I grew up in is a very difficult city to live in. Perhaps cities aren't created to uh, take care of the weaker parts of the population. I don't feel that they're designed in a way that 
is consulted with women or children or the disabled or the poor. It's very rare that you will find an architect, an engineer, or someone who's a city planner that would consult with the above. Uh, so tell me about Paula, the third in this uh, trio. Oh, the third Paula, I have to say she's based on uh, someone I met, but also not her. Uh, a, a little bit of me comes through being older, now that I'm older, uh, a, a savvy, uh, no-nonsense survivor. Uh, she's also not like me, but uh, there are parts of myself in in her. And uh, she's the most, uh, I suppose we call that street smart, that you know that no matter what happens, as she says, she's like a cork. She's always going to float. And uh, I just uh, admired when I was traveling, coming across women who I thought and had little resources, but they had the strongest resources, and that was their their uh, intelligence, uh, their their cleverness, and uh, you know a kind of wisdom that maybe I still don't have. I think of myself as being the most naive sixty-seven-year-old I've ever met. Uh, so I, I admired those women that I met that look like they could handle anything. Mm. Uh, one of the themes that runs through the book is, uh, is, is a great desire to connect and then yes. sometimes failure to connect and loneliness because of that. Karina, you know, later in her life, has a good marriage, right? A second marriage and a couple, I think, daughters and a, a happy life, but, but she feels at times she, she can't connect. For example, she, she would like to read books, read poetry with her husband. He's, he's not interested. Uh, she has to, I guess, content herself with, with reading alone. It, it's kind of an emblem of, of a connection she'd like to have. Yes, I think that I think she is, feels a gratitude and it loves her husband and loves her children, but there are some things that she has to explore by herself. And, uh, you know, she wonders and thinks about her friends and whether they are also admiring or looking at these things of beauty. I think sometimes, you know, we forget that we need beauty, that beauty nourishes us as well, whether it's beauty in a poem or the beauty of, a, of going into nature. And sometimes we have no one to share that with or to communicate it with. Uh, but she seems to have made uh, a life for herself and uh, is happy. Mm. And I, I, that's how I see it. I don't see her, her conclusion as being uh, sad at all. Uh, she might miss her friends, but I, I think uh, it's a happy ending. Uh, Karina, early on, uh, she's in Paris. She describes her homesickness. Uh, you, um, you create a, a very memorable metaphor. She says, there's a hole in my heart as if someone had taken a cigarette and pushed it right through, clear to the other side. Yes. Well, I felt that often when I was traveling. I know people thought, oh, she's in Paris having a glamorous time. But actually, I wanted to be at home with my family. And the sketches that I created of my family and my home life in Chicago, and especially of my father uh, working in the upholstery shop, are, are true sketches from my memory. It was the first time I would sketch my 
family uh, in such an accurate way. Uh, I think sometimes people think how Salmanga Street is so autobiographical, and it's emotionally autobiographical, but I think in this story it was the first time that I had tried sketching my father, and later on he would be uh, the subject of a larger novel, Caramelo, but this was the first time that I had tried to sketch his uh, workspace and what his storefront uh, space looked like because he was an upholsterer and uh, the lint that was stuck on his sweater and the tacks on the bottom of his shoes. All those details are very lovingly recreated for the first time when I, when I uh, sketched him for this, for this book. And, and uh, attacks in his mouth, that, that struck you. Yes. Right, yeah, because, you know, posters buy these sanitized tacks in a box, and they, they, they look like raisins, They're these little tacks, and he put them in his mouth, and then he would kiss the magnetic tip of a light hammer, an upholsterer's hammer, and the tack would connect with the end of the hammer, and then he would, he would hammer the cloth to the wood. This would save time by by putting the tacks in your mouth, kissing the hammer, and then whack, whack, whack. And and I remember as a little girl watching my father do this and think, wow, he's just like a fire eater. He's like a circus performer. He's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a wonderful, wonderful view of your father. You've said that in in a way you were you you two were twins. In other words, it followed parallel paths, <laughs> or very much like each other. Yes, I think of all his children, I was the one that turned out to be his clone. And uh, we understood each other without saying very much. We also had great conflicts. My father, of course, didn't understand my desire to become a writer. Uh, He was frightened for me, and he had expected that I would go to college and meet some nice, you know, professional young man and uh, become a homemaker. And that was the last thing in my mind. I, I really wanted to, to be an author, and maybe I would marry later on when I got older. But first I had some business to attend to. So my father didn't understand that, and it wasn't until the end of his life, in 1995, when I was a recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship that my father finally put down his doubts because he was afraid that I was going to be destitute. And when he saw that I could earn from my pen and that I could buy a house with my pen and that I had a housekeeper who I paid with my pen and a gardener and a handyman, uh, he finally said, Mija, don't get married He'll just take your centavos from you. And I had to laugh because his whole life he'd been saying, when will she get married? Oh, poor Sandra. If only she would get married. And he finally understood that I was okay, that I could take care of myself. And, of course, a little bit after that, my father passed away. But we were, um, we were at peace with one another. We understood one another. And he continues to be a a great presence in my life, in the spirit, even now. Mm, yeah, that's that's a blessing for sure. Um, yes, he would he would apparently you know once you started uh, earning checks, um, 
uh, he, he would he would comment uh, about how many hours he'd have to work to earn that. Right? That's yeah. kind of a, a memorable right? My father, comment. My father, you know, uh, threw away uh, a college education when he came to the United States uh, in during the early 40s and was conscripted, served in World War II, and became a U.S. citizen. But, you know, he regretted that he hadn't finished his studies because he had to work as an upholsterer as opposed to uh, something where he would have had a easier time making a living. And, you know, he was always uh, sad and sorry about that. So I, and my mother regretted she didn't study. And so you have these two adults who wish they had studied, and that was a perfect partnership for their children because they wanted to make sure we would study. Of course, my father wanted me to study, so I shop for a husband, but I didn't know that when I was a young woman. And it turned out to be, you know, that uh, he was right, I was right. We both came to some place of understanding one another and forgiving one another. And uh, when he left this planet, uh, we were at peace and I feel so lucky about that. Let's take another break. We'll come back with our final segment with Sandra Cisneros. The new book is I Remember, uh, Martita, I Remember You. Martita Data Required, though. Uh, it's on our uh, latest UPR community book list. It's out and available now. We'll have more following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering news, politics, music, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. What began as an online bookseller is now the world's biggest internet-based company, Amazon. Supporters of Amazon hail the company as a boon for small businesses, allowing the little guy to compete with the big boys. But exorbitant fees and practices some call anti-competitive put Amazon in a less positive light. Is Amazon good for small businesses? That's next time on Intelligence Squared U.S. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio congratulates the Cash Celebration of Women's Suffrage Committee for national recognition of their traveling exhibit on voting rights. The 2021 Albert B. Corey Award by the American Association for State and Local History honors volunteer organizations that best display the qualities of vigor, scholarship, and imagination in their work. Utah Public Radio provided an audio version of stories about voting rights for the exhibit and is proud to be part of the Cash Celebration of Women's Suffrage Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, we have another uh, seven minutes or so with Sandra Cisneros. Um, she is the author most recently of Martita. I remember you, Martita Data Required, though. It's out and available now. Uh, so, Sandra Cisneros, you've mentioned that, uh, I don't know if it's your grandparents, uh, you know, made that journey from Mexico ending up in Chicago. You've made the, the reverse journey over your lifetime. Uh, there's some symmetry there. What uh, What's the significance, do you think? Well, you know, I would never have thought to come back and move here. You know, if it had come out of my head, I would have thought, I don't know. But I really did have a, a mystical experience. And uh, a voice woke me up one night and said, you are not your house. And it happened when I was visiting here in San Miguel de Allende, and at that time, I was very involved in two foundations I'd created to benefit writers, and I was 
obsessed with, you know, leaving my house to the city of San Antonio and making it an art center after my death, of course. So all this was uh, uh, detouring me from my writing. So when I woke up and heard a message mentally that said, you are not your house, I got it. I understood what that meant, that I had to like, abandon all this arts administration and get back to my writing. It happened here, and I don't know if it's because the spirits in Mexico are so vocal in a way that I haven't found anywhere else, that here in Mexico there's a great deal of spirituality and communication with the, those who have gone on. And I just felt uh, connected to the land in a way that I hadn't been to anywhere else. I knew this was the region of my ancestors. And I thought, well, I'll just rent a house here. I'll just finish my next book, A House of My Own, Stories from My Life. I'll just rent a house and finish that book here in San Miguel. And I did. And when I finished the book, uh, I just said, well, I'll just look around and see if there's a house that I might buy. And I did. And I sold my house first, of course, in San Antonio, Texas. And here I am. So I like to think I don't. You know, I like to think that 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 voice came from uh, some higher spirit, wiser than me. I don't know who it was, or if it was my ancestors or Saint Michael. I don't know, but uh, it woke me up, brought me back to my writing, and uh, I'm here now. And I also want to com- comment, Tom. Uh, your pronunciation of the translation of the book, Martita Te Recuerdo, is very good. Oh, Bravo. Well, but, uh, thank you. My my Spanish is rusty, but I, I, <laughs> I try. It's, uh, it's, it's good. And okay. I wanted to mention also that the book is, you know, a flip book. You can read it yes. in English, then you can flip it over, and it's translated beautifully by the poet uh, Liliana Valenzuela, who has been my Martita personally, a, a friend of mine who's been alongside me on her career for 30 years, so we know each other really well. We, she has translated all of my work brilliantly, except for House of Mangastri, but she's been there, a brilliant translator. And uh, for listeners out there, I, for the first time, uh, trans, uh, I recorded, excuse me, I recorded both the Spanish and the English on the audio version. Usually I do the recording in English and Liliana does the Spanish, but this time, because it was a girl who's Mexican-American, it required someone who speaks Spanish with an accent, me, and uh, so I tried to do both. It's very challenging, and I had a lot of fun. Uh, We also have two actors that do the voice of Marta and Paula in the letter section, and they're brilliant. So take a listen. The audio was a lot of fun for me, and uh, I think you'll like it. I've listened to a, a portion of that, at least the English uh, version. It's it's great to have uh, you know the author's voice. Great to have your voice on there. Um, yes. Just a couple of minutes left, and I uh, I I've been thinking about this a lot uh, since I read this. This is from a, an interview you gave, and you were talking about how listening is a very good training for being a writer. That maybe that helped helped you to notice things. Well, this sentence that you said struck me. I just want to have you comment on this very briefly. When you're a girl, you're invisible, especially if you're a Mexican girl. Yes, and especially if you're an older woman. 
Uh, I think sometimes, you know, when we're children are invisible, and then elders become invisible, too. And uh, I return to my invisible state that I was when I was a girl. And it's great. I like it because it allows me to be a spy. People say things and uh, aren't aware that you're in the room sometimes. They don't give you much importance. And sometimes you need to be out of the way and invisible to be a witness. Uh, I feel that it has helped me. And now at 67, uh, I feel I'm closer to being a spirit than a spirit. (laughs) And that helps me with the art. Mm -hmm. Well, wonderful. We are reached the end of our time here. Uh, Sandra Cisneros, uh, author of uh, several books, including The House on Mongo Street, Caramelo, a uh, house of my own stories from my life. The latest is Martita, I Remember You, Martita de Recuerdo. And as uh, Sandra Cisneros mentioned, uh, it's a flip book. You, uh, one half in English, the other half in uh, Spanish. Uh, you can read either or both uh, versions. And uh, that book is out and available now. Uh, Sandra Cisneros, what a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. Tom, thank you. I will remember you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Same, same with you. And uh, good luck with everything, and uh, hope, the, hope the book's doing very well. Gracias. Bye-bye. Bye now. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. The Bear River Migratory Bird Refuge protects an important but incredibly vulnerable part of northern Utah's ecosystem. This is no accident. Learn this week how a mysterious illness and community activism led to its creation. First this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look into some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Humans and birds alike have long benefited from the desert oasis formed by the wetlands of Utah's Great Salt Lake. The northwest band of Shoshone fished and hunted wildfowl there. Later, the duck clubs of Box Elder County, which started in 1884, were among the first white settlers to appreciate the fragile landscape and wildlife of the marshes. Members of the duck clubs hunted birds for food, recreation, and the income generated from visiting hunters. But in 1910, dead birds lined the wetland shores of Great Salt Lake, and no one knew why. In response to this mysterious affliction, duck clubs turned from recreation to activism. Because the illness threatened the very ecosystem that supported them, hunters campaigned to preserve the area. Local residents, sensing danger to their livelihood and heritage, joined the hunters in raising the alarm and ultimately generated a national response. Congress established the Bear River Migratory Bird Refuge in 1928 to conserve the wetlands at the mouth of the Bear River and to study the cause and treatment of the outbreaks. Once established, pioneering research by the scientists at the refuge led to the discovery of avian botulism. Treatment was as simple as removing mildly sick birds to locations with fresh food and water but scientists found that an ounce of prevention was worth a pound of cure. Since outbreaks tended to be large, prevention by stabilizing water levels worked better. The refuge built earthworks such as dams, canals, and nearly 40 miles of earthen dikes in order to sustain healthy waterways. To this day, 
Infrastructure at the refuge helps manage water flow, keeping harmful bacteria in check. Today, avian botulism continues to afflict waterfowl. Over 200 bird species use the nearly 80,000-acre refuge as a rest stop in their yearly migration, and 67 species use the refuge to nest. Increasing droughts and water diversions threaten this system. Safeguarding these marshlands took the cooperation of duck hunters, scientists, and community members from all walks of life, and their legacy is ours to continue. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by the Brigham City Museum. Find sources and past episodes at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. I'm Michelle Norris in NPR Studio One for this very special holiday performance with Afro Blue, Howard University's premier vocal jazz ensemble. If you have not heard them before, you are in for a treat. Cyrus Chestnut is here too. Check out an Afro Blue Christmas from NPR Music. Wednesday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org. This is Debbie Andrew, and I want to take a minute to thank all of our underwriters and our listeners for your support in this crazy year. So thank you. I wish everyone a happy, healthy holiday season. With all the anger in the country and your own life. The hormones that your body is releasing, adrenaline, cortisol, they're slowly killing you. (laughs) The healthier response is laughing. But it's getting tougher. We've got all these unwritten rules about who can laugh and who can't laugh. The latest laughter research, laughter experts, and stupid jokes to help you laugh at more things more often. Join us for LOL with Brian Champagne. Listen online at upr.org. Hello, listeners. I'm Shireen Gorbani, Salt Lake County Councilwoman. Join us for both sides of the aisle. This is a weekly debate over politics, policy, and big issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices on the right, in the center, and on the left. That's me. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing the residents of this state. We prove that you can still put Republicans and Democrats in a small room and have meaningful dialogue. Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. on Utah Public Radio.